the curve of progress is very steep on that mm, one. Mm. You're not going to want a five-year-old robot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like having a five-year-old phone, man. Yeah. Yeah. Phones don't last five years anymore. No, they don't. I, I still have, like, <laughs> a couple of really old phones that probably would work, except they're old. But, like, more recent phones, no. They just stop working. Uh, we were in the staff room talking about phones, and my coworker pulled out this old phone that had a little slide-out keyboard with actual Whoa. plastic buttons. And he's like, oh, this phone? It's the best phone ever. Still got the active keys. I don't need any other phone. This one was so good, I bought another one. When this one breaks, I'm just replacing it with the other one I've got in the box. Honestly, <laughs> I miss the keyboards that were real keyboards because I did not typo on them. Hmm. I can like constantly typo on these it, horrible touchscreens. You know, <laughs> it's not even about the touchscreen now. It's about the predictive text. Because like I'll write like a tweet, and in my head it all seems right, and I take it for granted that the words I type are staying the same, oh, yeah, and then it it's replacing words. them. It's and so then I tweet, and it's like, oh, apparently I'm a subliterate like neophyte. I thought I was saying something intelligent. Thanks, autocorrect. No, that's a real actual <laughs> word I wanted to use. It was spelled correctly. Why have you changed it yes. to a completely yeah. different word? Or yeah. names. All, or just All my made-up spellings. Those are intentional, thank no. you very much. My, well, I'm spelling things wrong on purpose. Don't my, correct me. My phone wants everything to be pluralized. <laughs> like, I'll write color and think I'm good, and then it's like colors. I'm like, no, why did you add that S? I didn't touch the S key. Uh, <laughs> on the plus side, my autocorrect has gotten very good at predicting what emoji string wow. I will use because I have gotten hardcore into just strings of emoji to communicate what I think and feel. Yeah. And it already knows like what emoji I'm going to use in various contexts. <laughs> so that's handy. Root. Yes. <laughs> Man, speaking of hieroglyphs, how about that Vatu by Evan Dom? <laughs> That's that for a cold open. Hey, you, we actually managed to segue. <laughs> Speaking of marks <laughs> and symbols. Welcome to the Trade Waiters. Today's episode will be Vatu, Volume 1, by Evan Dom. Uh, and I suppose this book is maybe a little more difficult to get your hands on than a lot of our Trade Waiters picks. Uh, at least if you want a physical book, because um, it is self-published by Evan, and you need to find him at a convention, pretty mm, much. You can you can order it on this, I can't you? I guess, yeah, you probably can. Yeah, probably so, can. I mean, it's, it's harder to get a hold of if you want to go through your traditional channels. However, if you go to rice-boy.net, I think, rice-boy.com, uh, he has uh, e-books available for sale, and I do think he, he ships worldwide. Okay. Uh, also, the webcomic, like, the whole thing is yeah, up as a webcomic. the whole thing is up there, so actually, it is one of the most accessible okay. <laughs> that we okay. have, in that every single page of this work, uh, and all his previous works, are online on a very... A lightweight website. If anything, I think our listeners will wonder why we just stop in the middle of this <laughs> wonderful webcomic they're reading because we're only addressing what was printed in Volume 1. Well, not uh, even. There's actually three volumes worth of comics of Batu on his site. Well, I'm, I'm saying we're talking about just the printed Volume yeah. 1, yeah. and there's three volumes on the website. So yeah. we're, yeah. There's a lot that I have not read because I am terrible at webcomics and... I've only read the read it on paper. I am up to date with Fatu. I read every update and I wait and I'm oh, one of those good. monsters we've clicking got, F five. We've <laughs> got we've got two Vatu experts in the room now. Oh good. <laughs> I've read it three times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess we need to do introductions, especially since we have a special guest today. Should, um, should we start with our special guest? Returning sure. champion. <laughs> yes, Pola. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> How many episodes does someone need to be on before we officially make them a trade waiter? I, I think Jess is now, like, the fifth trade waiter. Honestly. I'm a trade sitter. Uh. Okay, we need to just introduce her as the fifth trade waiter. <laughs> <laughs> like, not refer to her by name. I feel like I'm part of a superhero team. It's really cool. <laughs> okay. Well, I have a character revealing question for you. 
Uh, we've done the what was the first comic you read question uh, some time back. But what we haven't done is we haven't done what was your first webcomic? Oh, interesting. That's going, that's going way back. Uh, I think, so I, I guess I've, I've just started talking, so I will continue. My name is Jam. And uh, I think I started reading webcomics when I started going to university. And I basically asked my friend at the time, who was into this thing called webcomics, I'm like, well, what should I read? And he said, uh, you should read questionable content. So I did. And I read all of questionable content, and I read it every day thereafter, and I ended up being com- becoming quite good friends with Jeff Jacks. So <laughs> questionable content is my first, I think, I think. Wow. It's hard to define such things, but I'm pretty sure it's QC. That's cool. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think mine was Scary Go Round. Oh, I remember that. Um, that was one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, I read Scary Go Round all the dang time. And from there, like, the recommended comics link in the sidebar, I started reading all the other web comics, including... Wasted talent. Oh. And now we're friends. (laughs) (laughs) The chain continues. Yes. Um, Yeah, I I don't, I think someone just like recommended it to me on a forum and I was like, comics on the internet? Yeah, and I just distinctly remember from there like getting into like, you know, XKCD, QC, like all the other, oh, um, definitely dinosaur comics, like all those, all those things out from there, but I think I think Scary Go Round is what started it for me. Yeah, I love that a lot of webcomics would have that links page, because that led me to so many comics. Yeah. Like, I think I was on the internet when I was like eight or nine, so it's been a long time, um, but I think one of the first ones might have been Rice Boy, also wow. Up and Down. Yeah, I think that was up there with the early ones. Oh, but maybe before that, the Neopets comics. Okay. <laughs> they had comics on, on that site, and they were pretty good, so... But yeah. Oh, wow. And XKCD, you know, some of the classic ones as well. Ah. This is where I show off my age as being a child of 1980, because when I started reading webcomics, there were still, like, rings that connected different sites. Like for the links rings? page, there was, like, rings. Yeah, just you click and it takes you to the next page. And we're all part of the same ring. Uh, but my... Oh, my, yeah. I can't my, even know what you're talking about. Anyways. <laughs> anyways. Talking about so, yeah, um... But yeah. So <laughs> Kathleen is making your face yeah. like we're like some of us are very old and yeah. this is this is back when uh, my phone had a cord that connected to the wall <laughs> and a funny noise. It, it had a little plastic it. ring and you'd like I twist it around to dial the numbers. Anyways. Jeffrey, I have multiple <laughs> landline phones in my home. <laughs> right? Does it have the little rotary dial though? No. Yeah. No, because those are dumb. We got rid of those as yeah. fast as we can. I was just saying. I grew up with rotary dial phones. Um, so, anyways, no, I my first webcomic was Sluggy Freelance, which is a deep cut, I think. Some people don't even know what it is. One of the first, it, I think. It was one of the first. Um, I, I was... Just the fact that someone was doing this was fascinating to me, and so I went through the archives, and he'd already done, I think, about three years of content, so I just remember plowing through about three years of Sluggy Freelance and catching up and then following along, and then eventually, like, I kind of figured out the shtick and sort of lost interest, which is every three months he figures out a way to warp his story into a parody of something else. And once he got to his, like, Harry Potter parody, I was like, I, yeah, I'm done. Thanks. But, yeah, you know, that was my first webcomic. Okay. Uh, for me, um, like, I guess this is a bit of a, a story for me. Like, I... Uh, I think webcomics saved me for comics. Like, I was feeling pretty down on superhero comics before discovering webcomics and not really sure what kind of comics I wanted to make. And then I read Reinventing Comics by Scott McCloud, and that sort of introduced me to the idea of putting comics on the internet. So I immediately started, like, Googling webcomics. Like, there are comics on the internet, apparently. I need to find some. And Scott's site had a bunch of other comics to, to read through a lot of the really early webcomics were linked from there. But I think the first one I really got invested in was Mega Tokyo, which in is not a good comic. Like I, I don't, I'm not gonna recommend that to anyone, but it was one of the first long form comics on the internet, and I think that's what drew me in is like it's a whole story and it's a comic and it's out for free on the internet. So I read a bunch of that and yeah, there's nothing else to say because it 
really not that good. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Does uh, so? Bryce Boy concluded. Scary Girl Round concluded. Yeah, Scary Girl Round concluded, but the universe li- and like there was a Bobbins pre-Scary Girl Round, and then Scary Girl Round morphed into Bad Machinery. Yeah. But it did conclude. Did you, do you still read Bad Machinery? No. Um, I kind of fell off. I've read I've read some of it, but I mean, I'll just be very, very honest and say, despite being someone who makes webcomics, I don't read them. I just follow creators until they put out a book, and then <laughs> I back the Kickstarter. It's just um, stalking them. Yeah, I sort of like read until I know, like, oh, I like the flavor, and then sort of keep an eye on them until I can um, support them financially, because I just, I have a lot of trouble reading online these yeah. days. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. Screens I, mess me up reading stuff. I, I have a similar problem. And so it was just, it's funny that I'm reflecting on the fact that I still read QC every day. Hmm. This way, I've managed to, that one has kept me invested so long, and it's like I still get excited to go and read every single wow. day. And I'm like, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, there's robots in it now. I mean, there's always been robots, but there's like this big robot plotline and a lot of uh, AI stuff, and hmm. it's great. All right. <laughs> QC is great. <laughs> okay, well, let's uh, let's talk about Vatu. Uh, right. Actually, let's talk about Evan Dom first a little bit. So this this is my pick, which is why I'm so eager to talk about this book. <laughs> um, Evan Dom is mostly known from the internet. He's done a lot of things on the internet, though. He his first uh, web comic was Rice Boy, which is why everything is hosted on rice-boy.com. Uh, and I didn't actually realize this until I went to his site doing research for this podcast, but all of uh, his other fantasy books take place in the same world as Rice Boy. Like, I didn't re- even realize that when reading Batu, but it's the same universe. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I knew that. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Sorry. I just assumed it's the same <laughs> style, but like a whole other world. But, like, so he's done Rice Boy. Uh, he's also done Order of Tales. Uh, and then Batu is the sort of the third work in that series. I think there's also some short stories as well. He's also done a couple of really interesting print projects that have been on Kickstarter. Uh, he did an illustrated version of Wizard of Oz. And he's also done, uh, or I think he's still working on, an illustrated Moby Dick. So that's been Kickstarted. Oh, it uh, it's in production. I missed it. Okay. I'm going to have to get it from him at a uh, convention, I guess. It looks beautiful. It's, it's white with uh, black sides to the paper. And it, it comes in a slipcase that's black. Anyway, his design sensibility, he is a, he is a book person yeah and his books are beautiful and awesome uh mm-hmm. worth worth purchasing in print edition but yeah the the illustrated version of Obi dick looks really good <laughs> looks really good and i have the wizard of oz one and that's beautiful <laughs> yeah it's in my to read pile uh, uh also uh vatu won an ignatz award in 2014 and a stumptown comics arts award in 2013 when those still existed okay right. uh should we i guess i should talk about the story too so this is a, a fantasy story, basically, but it's in a completely unfamiliar world. There isn't the sort of the elves and dwarves and all that stuff. Uh, it's completely uh, made up world, but there's a lot of sort of anthropology built into it, which I really appreciate. Uh, it's the story of this. There's this tribe who uh, have several different names because they refer to themselves as the named, but no one else calls them that, and. The, they, they're sort of nomadic, and they live out in the grasslands, uh, and their uh, culture is very complicated, but very sort of small scale at the same time. And the main character is a girl who is born into this world and later on gets uh, basically traded off to uh, another civilization who are more sort of an Iron Age empire kind of situation. And she basically becomes a slave of uh, one of the people from this civilization. And then there's some other characters too, but that's kind of like the, the general gist of it, I think. Yeah. Um, so any any thoughts on uh, on Batu? I think that this is a masterpiece. I feel very comfortable saying that. It's, it's really stunning, like artistically, writing-wise, creatively, world-building-wise. I'm a big fan, obviously. <laughs> Yeah, same. I'll I'll jump on that bandwagon being like a huge, huge fan of this work, uh, which I think is underappreciated now, but will come to be known as one of the most interesting pieces out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I really love Vatu. In fact, I mean, I've met Evan and we've, we've like spoken socially. He's a really nice guy. And I think his work 
is fantastic. I started with Rice Boy, and I really enjoyed Rice Boy, but reading Vatu was just, like, next level. I think whatever he was shooting for with Rice Boy, I think he surpassed that with, with Vatu. And, uh, yeah, it's it's a really excellent work. I Yeah, well done. And I teach a class in making comics, and I always reference Vatu in the world-building class, where I just tell students, like, if you want to look at epic scale to a story just and really unique world building look at vatu because it's just very unique it's its own thing and yet it also feels very like reminiscent of things in our world like it's relatable but it's also very alien at the same time if that makes any sense highly recommend uh, really enjoy i'd love to just talk about things i liked about it but let's <laughs> get some more thoughts <laughs> Yeah, I'd uh, never read any of um, Evan's work, uh, so this was my first introduction to it, and wow, uh, quite, quite the book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, uh, it's just very, very, very good on every level. Yeah, it's like, it's it's very, this is the thing with comics, is you have like a big, a big old book, and it takes so long to get places, but it feels like where it's going is is going to be worthwhile, and, like, I probably should read the rest of it. Uh, and art-wise, it's fantastic. Just phenomenal. Coloring's great. Oh, yeah. Coloring uh, again. As with our previous episode, just, like, <laughs> top-notch coloring. Yeah. yeah. So if we want to talk a little bit about uh, this book and its place in Evan's career, so Rice Boy started, and it was Evan's first foray into comics, as far as I know. But it started as, uh, from what I've read of Evan's commentary on Rice Boy, it it was quite an exploration of kind of a, 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 an interest in psychedelic imagery, and he was just kind of writing along a feeling without necessarily a very detailed idea of what he wanted to say and where he was going with the work. Uh, and then Order of Tales, he took a major step back, so uh, Rice Boy is very heavy on color, and color, I think, is something that is one of Evan's natural strengths. But in he recognized that he was using it as a crutch in Rice Boy to... Perhaps, in his words, I'm not sure, I mean, that's, that's a matter of opinion, right? But uh, to disguise, in his view, some weaknesses that he had in line work and storytelling. So he took a major step back and wrote Order of Tales, which is another 900-page work, <laughs> uh, but is entirely in black and white and has a consistent story from beginning to end and, like, a very consistent through line. So I feel like he really leveled up through that process, and then coming back to Vatu, he's like, colors are back. But he uh, he brings a much more considerate palette to this. I think color plays a really important role. It certainly has a lot of symbolism throughout this work, and it's it's wielded very very precisely in this work. Whereas in, in Rice Boy, you find it it's just like very overwhelming. <laughs> like there's so much color in Rice Boy. Mm-hmm. I find, and here it's very restrained, mm-hmm. uh, and he's very very careful about how he wields color in this book. Yeah. But it's, it's really something to behold. It really draws me in very quickly. And uh, the mood carries forward very quickly. Mm-hmm. Like for, for me, like this stands out as, I would say, the, the epitome of what fantasy as a genre can achieve. Like I love the idea of fantasy, and I all, I'm always looking for good fantasy stories to read, but uh, often I'm disappointed. Often, every, uh, a lot of stories seem uh, derivative and just more of the same, and the characters just aren't interesting, and I'm not sure why I'm reading this. Um, but Evan's work is like the complete opposite of that. It's like he's really thought through what is fantasy, what can it be, what kind of stories can I tell with this, and really found something like that's both really unique and also sort of leads to what what can be achieved with this. And I think what it comes down to is that he isn't trying to do mythology. He's not trying to take an existing mythology and say, I'm going to do this, but in a conventional modern novel. He's sort of invented everything from scratch, uh, but at the same time created cultures that are reminiscent, uh, that sort of, they, they remind me of real world cultures without being too specific. I think the, the empire, what are they called? Sata. Sata. Uh, the Sata feel a little bit like Rome. I think uh, of all the things in this book, they're the ones who can most closely be associated with a real-world historical culture. But even then, it's like, no, there's a lot of things that are 
clearly not Rome or maybe a little bit of like Han Dynasty China thrown in and um, they're clearly meant to fulfill a specific role as a type of culture that's existed in history and how they've related to more sort of nomadic cultures that may or may not have a writing system and that kind of thing uh, and so really the story is, a, is about that relationship and that's a relationship that has existed many times in history and is really interesting to sort of think about and re-examine but he's not trying to say it's dwarves but this or it's elves but this <laughs> which gets like just gets me out of the story so fast yeah I, I would like to agree and jump on that point if i could what always has struck me about evan's work is again how far divorced it is from reality and yet is still very relatable and mm-hmm. still very uh, feels very real and engaging None of the characters in his work are human. None of the characters in his work have ever been human. And yet, like, I relate so strongly to Vatu and so quickly. Something about their character really draws me in and is very engaging, and I identify with them. And for me to be able to identify with so many different characters in this world when it is so far from our world is really a remarkable thing. And it's uh, it's fun. It's fun for me as well. I mean, as, as, if, as you are a fan of science fiction and fantasy as I am, you do get kind of bored by those mm-hmm. tropes, right? And it becomes quite stale. And to have someone who is so deliberately trying to make as much of a departure from that as possible is really refreshing and fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's all super unique. And, um, I mean, something I was actually thinking about, and maybe, John, you might have some thoughts on this, is I just sort of felt that the fact that none of the characters are human and it deals with this idea of a kind of Iron Age civilization that's forming an empire as it relates to this nomadic culture, I feel like this is like a really good way to trick someone into thinking about Aboriginal issues in a modern context. Because you could read a story like this and everyone's like not human, so you can kind of relate to anyone in this story uh, but then, like, the situation itself, you could, like, apply that directly to, like, our history. And it's, like, a way of not... Pr- like, if you did, like, a straight-up, like, I'm going to do a historical story about the formation of Canada, like, you'd immediately people get their backs up. Like, oh, no, that's not the way it happened. Or, like, oh, I feel like I'm being judged. Where, like, this, it because it's so fictional, it's, like, you can kind of, like, look at this story of, like, an empire and colonialism... But because it's all fictional, it's like everything's a little bit removed, so no one feels like really put upon. Like it's a nice, it's like a safe way of exploring this concept where no one needs to feel like they're like a target. Yeah, that makes any sense? I I would say it's it's more than that. I think it's an open metaphor where it's about colonialism for sure, but it's not specifically colonialism against Aboriginal people. It could be colonialism against northern europe during the roman empire or colonialism against the nomadic people who live north of china or like it's open enough that you can sort of see connections everywhere right and i think that is definitely really powerful right yeah yeah, that that's maybe says it better yes thank you i I would agree with that like uh i i agree as well that i think this is a story that is uh, on one of its aspects i do think it's trying to achieve a lot of things at the same time but i do think it's trying to discuss colonialism Mm -hmm. uh but this this context allows you to explore the issue in a lot more depth as well and how it affects a lot more different groups in different ways and exploring all of the different angles in it through this story. And it's a story that has such length and depth that uh, it it has the space to explore it. There's sort of these uh, intersections of oppression occurring within the story, right? Because um, it's a patriarchal society, so even if you are on top, like, if you're part of the colonial society, but you're a woman in this story, you are being oppressed in some ways, and then there's um, there's the Grish, which are a different uh, species, who are oppressed differently than Vatus, like, fluter species are oppressed, and they're in different districts, so there's all of these other sort of things that it's exploring, it's exploring a lot, they're, like, I think there's over 800 pages now, um, and this is just book one, but it's, it's fascinating, um, and I think it does it really well. Yeah, it, it's frustrating. The Grish you mentioned uh, aren't in this book. Oh, no. Neither are the Sa- uh, the Junti, and <laughs> they don't have Mari Velas. I think her name is Mari Velas, but uh, uh, that stratified society. So later in the work, the Satans be 
are more deeply explored in their society within itself, and it is a class-based system. So they also examine different people in their, sorry, different different classes within this society and how they interact. They do explore gender within this patriarchal mm-hmm. society and how it interacts. And they, I think, I believe the, or one of the ways that it can be interpreted is that the Junti are used to examine kind of a, a privilege while being oppressed kind of uh, <laughs> aspect. There's there's a lot of depth to this work as the story continues. And if you if you liked it at all, it's definitely worth continuing because it gets even better. Like, it was so frustrating for me to get to the end of this book and be like, we don't even get to talk about the Jinji. No! <laughs> well, yeah, I would, I mean, uh, I obviously our listeners didn't see, but I brought in uh, Vatu Volume 2, which we didn't have time uh, for everyone to get a hold of to, to do this book review, but uh, I did start reading some of that leading into this podcast, and yeah, like, I was actually surprised at how many more layers start to get added to the story, starting with book two. I was like, wow, we're only just scratching the surface with volume one. Yeah. But, I mean, even within volume one, there's a lot of really good stuff to talk about. I mean, uh, one of the other species that you do encounter are the war men, and I felt that the war man's uh, kind of flashbacks and his sort of story of being basically kind of like the the head of his, like the, the chieftain of his society and then being defeated in, in battle with um, with this empire and now being forced to essentially just be this hired muscle in this really diminished uh, position. I mean, I think there was a lot of... There's a lot of pathos to that character. And, of course, he's he's mute, so you just have to infer a lot of this from just the visuals. Yeah, and, and it doesn't and have his, a facial action either. Yeah, which... Evan has a tendency to have a character who is like a blank slate, who is just like, like in A Rice Boy, there was the character with the TV screen face, which he would sort of give you clues in what was in the TV screen, but he would sometimes leave that blank as well. Um, And you've got this character here with just essentially like an orb for a face. It's interesting. It's, It's really fascinating in comics because when you have that blank slate, it really lets your reader impose their own sort of personality on that. Like, if you leave a blank slate, people can really pour themselves into that character. Yeah, and and silence is something that I find is really powerful in Evan's work that I've made note of, and if we can discuss it, it's really interesting. So I think I mentioned this in a review of Bone, where there weren't a lot of sound effects in Bone, and it reminded me of uh, Evan Dam's work. And as you notice, like, sound effects are sparse to to non-existent like if there was an instance i didn't note it dialogue is very sparse like he will use only as much dialogue as he absolutely needs uh and the only sound effect is the the culturally important sound of the flute yeah which is given its own specific symbol for the notes yeah which is great that's such a great way to show uh an otherworldly sound which you will not be familiar with as to show it as like a a symbol or a glyph or something Mm -hmm. just repeat it yeah yeah but it, it was always it's a very strange way for me to to read a comic that doesn't have a sound in it and yet be s- still very immersed and drawn into it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the yeah, one thing related to the speech balloons is something that I actually sort of was noting uh, I noticed this the first time I read it, noting it the second time is just the sheer size of the balloons and the size of the words in them. And I, I think that, I mean, this was a webcomic. Yeah, it and may I, be an artifact of the web. I think it's, I mean, probably definitely, because, like, I know um, when John and I were uh, formatting Wormwood High for print, John was like, okay, but maybe you make your words smaller, Kathleen. <laughs> and he was right at the end of the day. I, I, just for, for web, you have to letter big or people can't read what you're doing and they're just going to keep on yeah. scrolling. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's definitely from that, but I don't know. It's, just, well, it's still pretty clean and just oh. looks good. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, and then related to that, I was just going to say that it makes me, like, uh, want to reconsider my approach to writing because I am just really taken with the way that Evan is able to say such effective things with such few words. Because I, I look at my speech balloons that sometimes just, like, dominate, like, half a panel and I'm always thinking, like, how can I edit this down? And so I look at the way he's able to put, you know, five or six words into a balloon that's still about as big as a balloon I'd use, and it says it so perfectly, and I think, like, I'd probably have, like, 20 words in that space. Like, yeah. 
<laughs> Does he hand letter? Yes. Yes, okay. I thought yes. it was hand lettering. It looks, um, yeah. I'm, I'm fairly certain on that. I, I think there may also be just, I don't know, just, just a thought about lettering, but when you hand letter, um, or at least I find this is my experience, tend to edit as I go, because you mm. physically have to write the words instead of typing them into a speech balloon, mm-hmm. um, and sort of as you go, it's like, well, this is not necessary. I can, like, pare it down, pare it down. Yeah. So, I don't know. That's no, no. Well, I mean, I, I hand letter Crossroads, and I do a lot more dialogue editing on the fly there than with Teaching Us in Japan, where I just copy and paste, like, what got typed out. I think sometimes, too, um, it, you might find, or like one might find, that um, when you have the visual there, when you have the layouts, you might be able to cut out the dialogue. Say if the character's pointing to something, you're like, oh, the object is already like in the panel. Like I don't need for them to say, look, it's a cat, or something like that. Like Thinking visually uh, really helps me personally. Like having the page laid out, you can cut out a lot and just show it with the images. Yeah. Oh well, that's. I mean, like speaking as a as a teacher, like when I'm teaching people comics and looking at people's first comic projects, like that, that's always like the immediate feedback I have for people is like you can you can cut that. No, I get it. You don't need to have say it. You can just show it. Like, yeah, show don't tell. It's <laughs> like a big theme of comics. And it's done <laughs> so well in Batu. Oh really? It's, yeah. It's absolutely. Yeah. Do you want to maybe talk about like favorite scenes or yes. things like that? Hmm. Gosh, how to choose? Well, here, <laughs> no, it's tricky. I, I have a favorite scene. My favorite scene is when the war man is signing the uh, like uh, the agreement with the empire, and then the guy sitting across the table from him basically mouths off about how subjugated his people are and how no good the war men are. And then you see just a silent panel with a surprised look on his face. And then you see the war man walking out of the tent, and he's holding the agreement, which has a little bit of blood splattered on it. And then behind him, the tent just catches fire and burns to the ground. <laughs> and there's after the guy talks, there's just it's all silent, but you're just like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. <laughs> I think that was really well done. <laughs> yeah, that was a good scene. If I had to pick, I would be... From this book, it's the scene where Baby Vatu first gets her name mark. Mm. Because that becomes a, a motif throughout the work, and I, I see that called back to over and over again, and it just it sticks with me. And I, I love it when Vatu becomes the named. Mm-hmm. I like the, the sort of the anthropology of that, that this is how they define themselves, as they are the ones who have a name written on their forehead. And the people who look very similar but live downstream and have no marks on their uh, foreheads are the dead because they live downstream. And what, what these people do is when one of them dies, they put them in the river and their bodies assumedly go downstream. So anyone who lives downstream must be one of the dead. Yeah, there are other named tribes, though. They, yeah. uh, Oti is, says he's from the ones marked in red. Yeah, yeah. We only find that out later, though. I like yeah. how, how small the sort of the cosmology of the people are at the start. And obviously we find out later that, no, their cosmology probably was a little bigger than that. They knew about other people probably. But at least to start with, it feels very sort of, it's almost kind of comforting to know, like, this is the whole world. This is all you have to worry about, just these things. And these things, they're going to be enough to deal with. You have to figure out, like, are you going to follow the... um, what do they call the target? The target. Are you gonna when? <laughs> like, how soon do you need to follow the target? Like, when is the right time to leave so that like your people are gonna be okay? That kind of thing. What do you do when the when the priest dies? Like, how how do you pick the person to replace him? Yeah, like, you've the got lots to deal with. You don't need to worry about the world beyond the horizon. The the cats that are stalking you and they always live in trees and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. It's, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess I just really enjoyed all the bits with the war men. Mm. Um, I just really like those bits, especially there's one where um, they're sort of climbing through this giant skeleton, and there's a living space made out of the rib cage of this beast, and um, it's just really visually striking. Yeah, I really liked all those scenes. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite is when the the named meat. The, the empire for the first time, and this is the sort of this cultural contact. You're meeting someone you've never met before from a completely different culture, and like how that kind of plays out on both sides. And there's so much sort of like p- 
politics going on on both sides where like they're trying to figure out each other and like not lose out on this deal that I guess is going to happen where for example the um, the named like the priest doesn't want to reveal that there is a priest that the the way that their culture works is that there's a hunter and a priest and they essentially share power the priest says no no they don't know about the priest let's just keep that secret for now just in case we need that to stay secret later we're just going to tell them that the hunter is the leader which is like that's literally a thing that happened in aboriginal societies in canada where like there the the europeans had this idea of a chief and they had an idea of what a chief should be and they found someone to be like you're the chief because you look like you're you have status and then they ignored a bunch of other people who also have status so like the, all these sort of like callbacks to different cultures like from all sorts of different parts of history and and the, the fact that they have to like all that the empire wants apparently is for them to technically be part of this empire they haven't asked for anything else yet although they might later i expect mm-hmm. and then they say okay you're just going to write this mark on your tent that's how everyone's going to know that you're part of our empire and then we're going to go away now goodbye yeah well I, I mean i love that he just pulls out like this contract written in a language that this this guy doesn't read uh-huh. and they're just like yeah read this and sign it it's like what? What is this? Like the Apple Agreement here? Like what, <laughs> what am I exactly am I signing? Uh-huh. You know? But at the same time, like they, these people are not illiterate because they have their names written on their foreheads. Yeah. They have a writing system yes. clearly. Well, well I it's said it's not that writing. I said system. a writing system they don't know. Yeah, yeah they uh-huh. they have their own system, but it's not like they translated it. They just are like, no, here's what the empire's. We the empire speaks this. We we wrote our terms in that. Now sign here, which uh-huh. I think what is he basically puts like an X. No, he I mean, writes it's his a, name. That is or it's his, his name. it's his name symbol. But I mean, yeah. I think in the context of this empire, it's essentially yeah, to them, it's it. like marking yeah. it with an X. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh yeah, sure, that's a legally binding document now. I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think it was any one particular scene, but I just really enjoyed the way Vatu and uh, Oti Oti mm. uh, played off each other because Oti seems very much kind of resigned to this new world it's like well they're the empire they beat us i guess i'm just going to try my best to fit in here where vatu is the total opposite Vatu, she's just like nope this is this is crap i want out of here i'm going to destroy this empire (laughs) i'm going to save my people you know and vatu's constantly putting her forehead mark back on and ot's like don't do that or they're going to get upset you're going to get us both in trouble (laughs) (laughs) Just the, the dynamic between those two in almost every scene, I thought, just worked really well. It was almost almost kind of like an odd couple thing, but mm. maybe not as funny. <laughs> Oti has a lot of uh, internalized colonialism. I would agree with that. Yeah. I would say that uh, what really struck me about Oti, especially on this reread, was how much of the slander against his own people he had internalized yeah. uh, mm. as kind of justification for his own subjugation. Like It's like, this must be true. Because I'm here, and if it wasn't true, then why am I enslaved? Right. You know, and it's a uh, it's kind of heartbreaking to read and mm-hmm. uh, see that carried forward in how he treats Fatu when she arrives. But it's a really fascinating way to explore those issues, and yeah, painful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd love to know more about uh, Oti and how they give they give Fatu the flute, don't they? In the yeah. end, and Oti asks Fatu to teach to teach him the song because he's forgotten most of them. Yeah, and then Vatu, Vatu says, like, well, I don't I'm, like, I've been away too long. I'm going to start forgetting these. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. it's really sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, like, this resentment and love that OT has at the same time. It's, like, playing together. It's, it's very interesting. Because he sort of criticizes Vatu for, like, trying to keep her culture, but he also wants to have the culture back, and he's like, desires to preserve it in some way, so he's sort of this very complex, conflicted character. And I feel like all of the characters are very complex like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, even even within the Empire, like, uh, you know, Clarius Torai, like, the kind of agent of the Emperor, like, he's got dimension. He's not just, like, the mustache-twirling, like, evil, like, nemesis. He's He's got complexity and depth. So, you know, he's kind of got and you know he's got like he catches vatu in in his like study and 
you know, I mean, he'd probably be within his rights in his in his situate in his station that he could just, you know, throw Vatu in prison or kill Vatu. But instead, he's kind of amused and like talks about this board game with her and has this conversation that didn't need to happen. So he's just sort of, you know, like he's got this kind of more he's got complexity, right? And I, I just appreciate. I appreciate a story where everyone is complex and it's no one is just uh, a, a, a cardboard cutout, you know? No one's just a simple one note, you know? Yeah, and I think that's definitely true of the, the named as well, where, like, at the start of the story, there's all these sort of petty jealousies going on where there's, there's complicated po- politics, even in such a small-scale society, and it makes them so relatable so human in a, a sense that a lot of other stories, I think, uh, either cast uh, nomadic, quote-unquote, Stone Age people as either being barbarians or being, like, noble savages, where you either have to be, like, not very good or better than the, quote-unquote, civilized people. And no, these are just people. These are people, they don't look like humans because there are no humans in this story, it's a made-up culture, but they're, they act like humans would act. Mm-hmm. And that's important. Yeah, and they have like their petty struggles for power, and mm-hmm. they make mistakes, but they also um, have moments of goodness, and it's, yeah, they're very human. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. They're all complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think, um, I mean, similar, uh, similar to the, our previous review, I would say one other thing I noted about Vatu was it was a real nice slow build like I feel like you start out with we got this nomadic culture and a child is born and there's some internal politics and strife within this culture and now there's this empire and you know or sorry no first there's the the dead there's the dead then there's this empire we take Vatu away we meet a war man we see the war man's backstory we get to the city we learn more about the city Getting into book two, we see these other creatures and other people's backstories. And it's, again, it's sort of, you're starting in a very micro, in a microcosm, and it's just getting broader and broader. And you're incorporating more and more things, which I think that, again, if you throw your reader in, in issue one, page one, and it's like, there are 12 races and seven lands, people are already like, whoa, hang on, I gotta take some notes here, where you just start with one and you just start to slowly add complexity it just really nicely leads leads your audience into this world where they become really comfortable with the fact that there's, you know, five or you know, seven different uh, creatures that have different looks and different cultures. Yeah, excellent stuff. Final thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> Those uh, that couldn't hear it, Kathleen gave the A-OK symbol with her hand. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> I cannot enthusiastically recommend this book enough. I think everyone should read it. It's great. And uh, read it forever. <laughs> give Evan all your money. If you see him at a convention, just give him all, all just, your money. Just throw money at you him. You will not regret it. Like, take books. as much as you can get. <laughs> just <laughs> open your wallet on his table. It's wonderful. How many books can I get for this? It's beautiful. <laughs> and I love it, and I will love it forever. I'm, I'm just so ecstatic that I had the opportunity to read it again for Trade Editors. Ah. Yeah, I got uh, Volume 2 at Emerald City. I uh, haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it's uh, probably going to move to the top of my very large <laughs> to read pile because I don't think I want to wait. It's yeah, worth it. I, I recommended this book to many people on many occasions for many different reasons, and I'm going to continue to do that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I highly recommend Vatu, and I recommend, if you can't wait, go online, uh, get caught up like Angela and Jess did. Read it all. <laughs> a good rainy um, day, and, and just keep clicking forward. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and then I'll also just say, if you are uh, a listener from Vancouver, in May there will be the Vancouver Comic Arts Festival, and Evan will be there, so you could actually dump your wallet on his table and take multiple books away. And so I highly recommend that you buy all of Evan's books in May. Same here. Yeah, I'll be there. Actually, yep. don't, don't go to the table because I want all the books for myself. 
I might be going back to buy hardcover editions of books I already have. <laughs> wow. <Yeah>. Wow. <laughs> yeah. with, with your tiny house where you don't I have know. room for books. I know. That's how much I love it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the highest recommendation. You don't you can understand. Get. <laughs> he made Order of Tales, and I, could, I collected it in trade, and then he made a, an omnibus edition which looks like the book that is in the book. Whoa! Whoa. I didn't even know that. amazing, and I want one. <laughs> I was like, I've been mad about it quietly for years, and I think I'm just going to take the plunge. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I tried reading Moby Dick once and got bogged down like a third of the way in. Probably going to end up buying his Moby Dick anyways, just because it's made by Evan Dom. And I don't know if I'm actually going to read it. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> Hopefully Evan's listening to this podcast and knows to, like, double the quantities of things he's bringing to Van Calf. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, it's really good. Really, really good. I would definitely recommend this. I'm very uh, pleased that I had the opportunity to finally read it. So thank you. Yeah, good recommendation, John. I have a habit of picking books that look like they're going to be a really big book, and then it turns out, oh, no, the pacing's really fast. There's not actually that much story in it. I actually now kind of regret I didn't uh, get us to read the first two volumes. No, that's okay. We can pick it up later, maybe. Yeah. 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 Uh, Shoutouts. I guess I can go first. Uh, I'm Jonathan Dalton. You can find my work at phobos-comic.com. And I'm going to shout out a book that I picked up at Emerald City. I picked up Shadow Eyes by Sophie Campbell. I haven't finished reading it yet because it's a pretty big book, but it's really good. It's a... Uh, superhero story, but obviously well outside the Marvel DC sphere, uh, and it's mostly just angry teens in a post-apocalyptic world, and one of them has superpowers. It's great. Sophie Campbell is so good. Yeah, I really so, like Shadow so, so, Eyes so as well. Good. My name is Jam. I quit comics. I don't make comics anymore. I might make them again, but later. And um, we are already enthusiastically shouted out questionable content. If you fell off it, it's worth getting back on again because of all the robots. And there's a big <laughs> one, and her name is Bubbles, and she's great. Uh, I'd also like to shout out another webcomic, which recently kind of came back. It's Barbarous. It's at Johnny hyphen... Uh, JohnnyWander.com? I think it's JohnnyWander.com. Yeah, let's say, say, if you Google Johnny Wander... You yeah. should, you'll probably find it. Should should get it. But it's a comic about uh, a magical world, and there's a big monster and a girl who has trouble controlling her magic powers and becomes a super in a Brooklyn house. <laughs> Brooklyn apartment building. That's kind of the plot of Barbara so far. Oh, I don't know what I'm looking at. Yeah, yeah. johnnywander.com. Yeah. Uh, that's it. I'm Kay Gross. You can find my work at... Uh, Comics.com, which is K-A-G-C-O-M-I-X. Um, got a bunch of comics there, or you can read my ongoing webcomic, LunarMelodies.com, which is starting to be more needy uh, for the free-to-read stuff, so you can read that if you want to. I'm sure we've shouted her out before. I'm just going to shout her out again, because she continues to make friggin' amazing work. One of my absolute favorite webcomics, and I think she's going to kickstart a book this year, hopefully. Um, but Kathleen Jacks, her book, uh, her comic Band vs. Band, just continues to be phenomenal, and there's really nothing else like it out there. 11 out of 10, 12 out of 10 would read, definitely. Just go for it, dive in, it's a fun time. Band vs. Band. Nice. I'll have to check that one out. So good. Yeah. Um, my name's Jess Pollard, and you can find my webcomic Liquid Shell at uh, liquidshell.tumblr.com. And I would like to recommend um, Matthew Seeley's work. I'm holding a zine that he made called Margaret in my hand right now. Uh, I just read it. It was great. And he was sitting beside me at Emerald City. Great guy, great stuff. You can find his work at uh, matthewseeley.com. That's uh, Matthew spelled the regular way, S-E-E-L-Y dot com. Okay. Cool. I'm Jeff Ellis. You can find my work at jeff-ellis.ca. Uh, and I'm going to shout out another friend of mine, Eric Zavadsky. And when I met up with him at Emerald City, uh, he had his new book, The Dregs, uh, which is written by Lonnie Nadler and Zach Thompson, who are uh, based in Vancouver. And they had their book launch for the dregs at Golden Age Comics, uh, sadly, when Eric was in Calgary. So despite not having the artists on hand, I think it was Golden Age's biggest book launch that they've ever done with local creators. And the dregs is published by Black Mask Studios, and it is 
a dark, twisted tale set in the downtown east side of Vancouver. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's a new series that just started. It looks, looks really good, and I think Eric's doing some of the best work of his career. So just check it out. It's really easy to download because it's Black Mask Studios, so it's available in pretty much any digital form you can imagine. Okay. Angela, what is our next book? Okay, so our next book is going to be uh, the first two volumes of Your Lie in April by Naoshi Arakawa, and it is available on Comixology and uh, other platforms, I assume. Uh, The Trade Readers is presented by Cloudscape Comics. Thank you to the Inspiration Lab at the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record there, and uh, Sleuth for the music, and... We are around on the internet. You can find us and listen to our many, many episodes. Yes, like us and follow us. Or just give you us don't a have review. To, you don't. You don't have to like us on the internet. Just like us in general. Yeah, we'll please, be happy with please, that. please, God, <laughs> please like <laughs> us. Lacking in friends. <laughs> I need validation. <laughs> that's why we're doing this. Okay, that's it. Goodbye. Sure, yeah, we'll cut out a piece here. Author name. Okay. We've got time. That's not mine. Uh, I thought it was Is yours. it? Did you not? No, I, w- I gave it to you because I have one. I have two. I don't need two. You get to keep that. Oh! Yeah. I thought this was yeah. just a lending Because thing. I gave John that one. Yeah. I'm oh, okay. Let's yeah. hang it forward sure. here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, bud. Everyone you get a book and yeah, you get a book and you get a bad tube. Everybody gets a bad tube. <laughs> Best podcast ever. <laughs> so uh, after Don, after VanCast, Angela will replace all her Evan Dom books with new Evan Dom books, which she'll pass to Jonathan. That's right. And his old Evan Dom books go to Kathleen. That's right. The ones I that she has doubles of go to Jess. <laughs> okay, that's it. Goodbye.